1: Greetings fellow time travellers, great to have you with me for this journey through space and time together. Before we get started, it's the customary thank you to everyone uh, who has so far joined my Patreon site. It's the finances coming via that uh, connection that makes what Paul and I do possible. So if you're there providing that financial support, a huge thank you. If you're not a Patreon member yet, but you feel the time has come to support us, Uh, then go to patreon.com look for me by name Neil Oliver and just follow the instructions you can join by the month or you can join for a year and it is cheaper if you invest in a whole year's worth of love letters all all at the same moment but as well as supporting the podcast you get access to content exclusive content weekly monologues question and answer sessions Uh, we do competitions with prizes and so on and so on okay that's the end of the advert it's now time High time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. It's eleven o'clock in the morning and the sky is filled all at once by the brightest flash of light. Then the thunder of a monstrous explosion followed by a great blast like the sweeping hand of an angry god. No one knows for sure how many were killed by that brightness and that thunder, but it's estimated to have been over 100,000 men, women and children. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In the last episode it was 1945 and we were with the Russian army as they liberated Auschwitz-Birkenau. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul, and fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we witnessed the revelation of one of history's great horrors, a horror that systematically unfolded over many dark years. In complete contrast, this week's episode is about a moment that's all over in one blinding flash, an instant. We're in Japan as one single apocalyptic explosion is unleashed an explosion that is etched in history. We're in the city of Nagasaki with a man called Tommy-san. Hello everyone, fellow time travellers. Welcome to Neil Oliver's love letter to the world. Uh, we're well through these love letters now. I think we're in the 90s out of 100. So somewhere there's a clock ticking on this one. But where are we? We're in Japan. A country I have visited, I'm pleased to say. I spent a month in Japan in, when was it? must have been about 2012. It's the first place I've ever felt properly foreign. You you, you know, I've been in places that that seemed foreign to me, obviously, like Spain or (laughs) anywhere really where they don't speak English. But in Japan, I felt like the foreigner. I felt like a clumsy, ignorant, hairy <laughs> barbarian. It's really funny. It's because of all the... There's, there's a distinctly different culture there and an etiquette and a... And a and, a, and you can cause offence without knowing it. You can stand on the wrong thing. You can do the wrong thing. But because of the etiquette, no one Japanese will tell you you've made a mistake. It's only later that like your fixer or somebody comes away like half an hour later going... I can't believe you did that. You, what? What? What did I do? What did I do? Anyway, the story today is about the second of the atomic bombs that was dropped on the city of Nagasaki and the effect that it had on, on one man's life. I, I've always had a thing about finding First World War, Second World War and so on, these events to be too big to contemplate because everything's about millions and they change the world and it's, it, it can be hard to make, make it real. So I'll, I, it helps me when I connect something to an individual because I can empathise with the one in a way that I find it hard to empathise with the 10 millions or the 100 millions. So let's let's take ourselves off to the city of Nagasaki. It's early morning on the 9th of August 1945 it's a pleasant day the air raid sirens sounded that early morning uh, and but no one was really particularly alarmed because nagasaki for various reasons had not suffered the the carpet bombing that had been uh, that had been inflicted upon much of the rest of japan and so the, the people of Nagasaki had a kind of a nonchalance about them. They, they would hear air raid sirens, but th- th- then nothing happened. Nagasaki is a is a port city. It sits on Kyushu Island, and they had been broad in context. The, the inhabitants of that city had been spared the the Second World War. It hadn't it hadn't been as bad as it, as it was elsewhere. And then at 8.30 a.m., the all clear sounded. You know, so first of all, you get the air raid siren. People are supposed to go to the shelters and get themselves into a place of safety. But then the, the then they all clear sounded. And nothing had happened anyway. No planes had come over. No bombs had dropped, which was an experience that the people of Nagasaki had had, had more than once. So they just, they just carried on with their business. And then just about 11 a.m., just a couple of hours or so later... With no warning at all, no air raid sirens, no nothing, the sky was suddenly filled in its entirety with the brightest flash of light that ever there was. Brighter than the sun, brighter than anything. It just turned the world white with brightness. And after that having gone off, that flash There was then, moments later, thunder of a gargantuan explosion. The biggest roll and cataclysmic noise of explosion, of a detonation. So there's the flash. Then moments later, there's this thunder. The the, the greatest clap of thunder you ever heard in all of your life. And then the blast wave. Like the hand of an angry god. The force the invisible force of the explosion just passed through and over the city and the people of Nagasaki. There was a single atomic bomb dropped by a single plane. I mean, if, if, if anyone who could still see, you know, given the intensity of the flash, and if they had been looking in the right direction, they might have glimpsed a, a United States B twenty nine wide wing bomber. It was called Boxcar, making its way away, having dropped the single bomb. It was nicknamed Fat Man. This thing, this this entity, this this egg that this bird had dropped from the sky, it detonated in in mid-air. You know, it, it it came down and then given it detonated above the city. And the, and, the, and the blast came out from there and it was just three days after the first atomic bomb had been dropped and that first atomic bomb as everybody really well everyone with any connection to the 20th century knows that it was dropped on hiroshima at, on the 6th of august hiroshima on honshu island in japan another island in japan and that had come from a plane called enola gay don't know if you remember the 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 song of the same name Enola Gay dropped Little Boy, so both bombs were nicknamed Little Boy and Fat Man. Apparently, with Nagasaki, it it drifted where it was supposed to explode, to hit sort of you would say, maybe the the central business district or the port or whatever was the actual target of the. In so much as it had a target, it drifted. It got caught in the wind. There was a kind of a there was a a, a drift. So where it went off, it wasn't supposed to. So it kind of devastated part of this, it devastated an area that that might not necessarily have been as devastated as it was. In any event, in that instant, in that moment of flash, rumble, and the, then the blast wave, something like 40,000 people died. 40,000 people died all at once. I say this all the time in relation to these Horrendous events. It's very hard to be sure about numbers because of the chaos that ensued. How do you really arrive at, in wartime, in, in, in all of the complications? How do you actually arrive at an accurate number? But it's, it's probably reasonable to estimate 40,000 people died in that moment. You know, and there was all this stuff about you know people's shadows being left photographically on walls where the person had been undone completely, vaporized. But the shadow, you know the flash kind of took a photograph of them, you might say, and left sh- shadowy images on the you know on the walls of buildings. But in the years in the years that came after, in the decade, not just years but decades later, people continued to die of radiation sickness, uh, so that eventually the death toll from fat man was at least a hundred thousand Japanese men, women, and children. but again, it's impossible to know. Maybe it was more, maybe it was fewer, but it was a catastrophic moment. Um, a moment really, you know, the, the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki are just, they stand alone. They're the, they're, the, they're the atomic bombs used in anger in wartime, and the like had never happened before, and the like has not happened since. So that's the generality, that's, you know, that's, that's what happened to the city that, that 9th of August, 1945. But in terms of uh, trying to empathise with it, trying to humanise it, and trying to vicariously live through someone else's experience, I, I alighted on a, a Japanese man who was then in his 70s, he was 75 at the time, he was called Kuraba Tomasaburo, And he was known to his friends as Tommy-san. And at the time of the the explosion over Nagasaki, he had been a widower for a couple of years. He'd been married for the best part of half a century, but two years prior to 1945, his his soulmate had died. So he'd been alone with with their dogs, with their pet dogs. And what did Tommy-san do? Well, two weeks after the bomb, moving in a daze, I suppose, through that apocalyptic Aftermath of the bomb, after two weeks of that, he hanged himself. He killed himself. Uh, He hanged himself in a room in his house with a length of clothesline at number 19, Minamaya Mati. And that was an address three miles from the epicentre of the detonation, which is three miles away. So he's right there, as far as atomic blasts go, uh, before killing himself, before hanging himself. He strangled his beloved dogs, you know, having obviously taken the decision not to leave them to scavenge and starve in the aftermath of his dying. When they found him, when, when neighbours found him, uh, his feet were still on the ground. He was suspended from the rope, but his feet were touching the ground and he was sort of, he was sort of curled over so that he was in a sort of fetal position, hanging there dead with his eyes open. So that was the end of Tommy Sant. He had been, he was uh, the only son of a Scottish-born merchant and adventurer called Thomas Blake Glover. He was why I went to Japan. Uh, we we made a television series, at, well, for, for BBC Scotland, actually. We made a four-part series about Scottish Adventurers in the dying days of the great age of exploration as the 1800s gave way to the early part of the 1900s. So we followed John Muir, known in America as the father of the national parks movement. We followed in his footsteps in Yosemite and California. William Spears Bruce was a Scottish uh, polar explorer and he went to Antarctica in the years before Scott or Shackleton, and we also followed David Livingstone to Africa. But Thomas Blake Glover was a, a, less, a less well-known, probably of the four, he was probably the, the least well-known to the general viewer or the general public, Thomas Blake Glover. He had arrived aged 21 in Japan in 1859. He was employed at that time by a British company, Jardin Matheson. He bought and sold tea, green tea, on behalf of Jarden Matheson. That, that was quite a lucrative business. He wasn't in Japan at, at that point. He was in Shanghai. He was on the Chinese mainland. And uh, as well as uh, you know buying and selling tea, he, he was prospecting. It was his job to seek out new lucrative opportunities. And so he came to Japan. It, Japan had been, for really for a couple of hundred years, it had been a closed country. The emperor, or the shogun actually, the shogun, the military commander of Japan, for a couple of hundred years had made Japan uh, sakoku, which means closed. And no one was allowed in and no one was allowed out. So any Japanese person trying to leave Japan during the 200 years from 1633 to you know, the mid 1850s would have been executed. And likewise, any foreigner landing in Japan, even a shipwrecked sailor, would likewise have been executed. You weren't allowed in and you weren't allowed out. But from the mid 1850s onwards, Japan was coerced by the United States' gunship diplomacy. The islands were forced to open up to trade because America had, and, and the West, they knew that there was money to be made in Japan and they wanted in. And so they forced their way in, basically, with threats. And in those very early days, it, Thomas Blake Glover was one of the very first, he might even have been the first, he was one of the very first Western merchants to get in, to get into Japan and get about the business. And he was, it, it was, was an unqualified success, really, from beginning to end. He started business. He, he laid the foundations of the company that still is Mitsubishi the company that he established is now is still there in unbroken line, but now called Mitsubishi. He opened the brewery that to this day makes Kirin beer, which if you're in, if you're in Japan bottled Kirin beer or cans of Kirin beer, that's the, that's the one, that's the number, that's the one everyone recognizes. It's like Budweiser or something. Everyone recognizes Kirin beer. That was him. That Thomas Blake Glover. And He was a very scholarly, very ambitious, driven man awake to and alive to the possibilities of this place in which he found himself and and never really left. So he involved himself in politics. And Japan was going through a, a time, it was going through a moment in those 1850s and 1860s. And the country was dominated by the shogun. The shogun is the military commander rather than the emperor the shogun of the Tokugawa family. And they they were in control, although there was an emperor, they were in control of all the decision-making. But there were rebellious factions rising in opposition to the Tokugawa shogunate. And (laughs) with some considerable vision, Thomas Blake Glover took the gamble of backing them and he ran guns to them. So he was bringing in weaponry rifles and such like, and selling them into the, the people who were rising against the incumbent shogunate. I think it's probably fair to say that he ran guns to both sides because he was a, he was a political player. But he, he backed really, it would appear that in his heart, he, he was in favour of the rebels. And they won. And they brought in what was called the Meiji Restoration. So they brought in a new emperor. This, this rebellious faction having overthrown the Tokugawa shogunate, they restored the emperor. It was the dynasty of the Meiji family. And so by his politicking uh, and his scheming and his gun running, <laughs> Thomas Blake Glover found himself on the winning side. So he's now in a very useful position for self advantage. And so he just goes from strength to strength. He imported the technology of the steam railway. So he was he was pivotal to the importing of the steam train technology to Japan. The transformation of Japan in the latter part of the 19th century is nothing less than extraordinary. Through those 200 years, when it was a closed country, right up until the 1850s, it was a medieval kingdom with knights in armor you know the samurai that's what japan was it, it would have been recognizable <laughs> to people from the from the middle ages from the from the medieval period in europe that was what japan was like and it didn't matter because nobody was coming in and nobody was going out so the fact that the world was changing around them had been invisible to the people of japan but Uh, in no small part down to the influence and the presence of Thomas Blake Glover Aberdeen born Thomas Blake Glover Japan transformed itself from a feudal kingdom dominated by knights in armour into a 20th century superpower something that took other countries centuries happened almost overnight in Japan in that period of Thomas Blake Glover's maturity in Japan. It was transformed from a medieval kingdom of knights in armour into a 20th century superpower that was capable of taking on and defeating in war Russia and then China. It's just, it's just a phenomenon. Well, Thomas Blake Glover, the old man, died in 1911 at the age of 73. And by that time, he was no stranger to the women of Japan. He entered into various... Relationships with Japanese women. Some of it was by way of positioning himself as someone who was to be taken seriously. It mattered and it helped that he was seen in that context. At the very least, he was taking on the culture of the place. He was living the life. You know, he was sort of walking the walk. He didn't. He he learned the language. He spoke Japanese. He learned that very quickly, and he. Immersed himself in the culture. He was with one common law wife after another, and he'd certainly, by the time, he certainly fathered a child, a boy, Ann, by a one common law wife called Mackie. And after he had been with Mackie for some number of years, he acquired a more formal wife. You know, rather than a common law wife, he went through more of the official, traditional ritual and ceremony with Awajiya Tsuru, by whom he subsequently had a daughter called Hannah. And when Tommy-san was about six years old, Thomas Blake, Glover and Tsuru approached Maki and persuaded her to hand over Tommy-san to them. Money changed hands. Now, if any of that sounds familiar, there are those who say that uh, Puccini... May have known the story of Thomas Blake Glover and Mackie and Tommy San when he wrote Madame Butterfly. That clash of cultures, and you know how Madame Butterfly is persuaded to give up her child, and then she commits suicide. there's the Madame Butterfly House <laughs> that you can visit, which is one of the one of the addresses that uh, that Thomas Blake Glover had. So they very much, whether it happened or not, Japan very much trades on the idea that Thomas Blake Glover was the inspiration for Puccini's Madame Butterfly. Anyway, Tommy-san always lived between two worlds as a consequence of all of this. You know, he was, he was born to a Japanese mother, but he had a, an outsider father, a Scottish-born Western father, and he never fitted in either world as a consequence. He spent time, there's fascinating photographs of Tommy-san in Aberdeen, visiting his father's family. He spent protracted periods of time seeing if he fitted in there, and of course he didn't. He was, however, he was very scholarly and hardworking, like his father, a very diligent individual. Uh, in 1899, he married Nakano Waka, who was, like him, a child of a British merchant. So she was in the same position as him, you know, born to a Japanese mother, but uh, her father was a, a British, an outsider, a trader. And they, they were very close. They were together for the better part of half a century. They had no children uh, for whatever reason. But when when war broke out, when Japan was at war with the West, post Pearl Harbor and, and all of the rest of it, Waka and Tomisan were under pressure and were hassled and menaced by the Kempitai, which was the military police of Japan, because they were mixed race, because it was known that both the two of them, the husband and the wife, had Western fathers. They were automatically under suspicion as possible, whatever, fifth column or spies or whatever, or just not to be trusted. So if it wasn't difficult enough to be a Japanese civilian during World War II in Japan, it was made even harder for the likes of them. Waka died in 1943, and so leaving Tommy san alone after half a century. So it was in that circumstance of, of, of uh, being a widower Uh, being without his soulmate having lost the other half of himself that the bomb dropped on Nagasaki and in the aftermath of it having survived the incident he was well aware of the fact that allied soldiers would be arriving Americans and the rest would be coming to Japan and he probably accurately predicted that having been under suspicion for the Kempitai the Japanese military police because of his mixed parentage he would automatically be under suspicion to the allies because he didn't fit he was neither one thing nor the other he was neither properly japanese nor was he a westerner and so it was contemplating that reality that persuaded him to take his own life and he is a fascinating character he was born into the past he was born in an, he was born in 1870 he was born in another world and he he had his childhood in in a japan which was still coloured, to some extent, by the sakoku period, when it was closed to foreigners. And then, as I say, it had only been in 1853 that a US Navy Commodore, Matthew Perry, uh, had led what was called the Black Ships Expedition into Japan. So they turned up in Japanese harbours and said, open up (laughs) or we'll knock you down. And Japan reluctantly opened up to the west. And so Tommy San saw all of that. He straddled that impossible divide. So Japan became a powerhouse in every way, an industrial powerhouse, a military powerhouse, a dominant presence in the Pacific and in Asia. And then it fell to disgrace and final defeat in the aftermath of the bomb. And all of that was too much for Tommy San. And so Tommy-san took his life in those circumstances. So he was yet another victim of the bomb that fell on Nagasaki in 1945. Standing in front of somewhere between a quarter and half a million people, he sets his prepared speech aside, clasps the podium with both hands and speaks from the heart and delivers one of the great speeches of the 20th century. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address for these complicated times. It's nice and simple. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise associated with the podcast series. We have t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all sorts of paraphernalia. My Instagram account is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening to it and write a review to convince the online crowd that they really should join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Ploughman. Thanks always for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.